multicultural headquarters of the future capital of the free-thinking states of America known as Los Angeles, this is the Drunken Taoist Podcast. Tonight, restoration ecologist Taylor Parker gives us the lowdown on his company's mission to restore wetlands, save endangered species, fight the slobber of the city, all while trying to get folks to actually give a shit. Plus, life, the universe, boxing lessons, and everything in between. And now, quietly awaiting my one-way ticket to Guantanamo, I'm Rich Evers. And my partner in crime, answering hopelessness with a defiant smile and a raised middle finger, Daniel Bolelli. Away we go. Holy smokes, episode 11, just like that. Ladies and gentlemen, Daniele Bolelli. Here we are. Uh, just finished the conversation. Now, this has been on my mind for the last hour as we were talking. At some point, in completely random fashion, I mentioned a raccoon. And uh, the damn raccoon has been on my mind for the last hour because the other night, right in front of my house, I see these two shadows moving. I look out and I kid you not, they're like 12 feet tall for like 250 pounds. <laughs> they are actually raccoons. And one stand up, look inside my house, right, glued to the glass door of it all. It was a weird moment, man. Like strange. Um, yeah, they were. I wasn't high. They weren't like two robbers named whatever. But no, they were actually raccoons. It was really cool. Well, that's what you get when they they had a steady diet of of garbage from McDonald's. The combination of uh, all the hormones. And all the preservatives, you get 17 foot tall yeah. raccoons. Yeah, either that, that's the one chance the atomic waste uh, <laughs> consumed that makes them humongous, or the fact that they, you know, once they left my door, I took a peek and I went into the garden and I went to Zara where I left my weights and they just laid there on the bench press and started doing weights and then they were shooting steroids after that. So That'll do it too. That also may have something to do with it. It's funny, a lot of people, I guess, don't realize, but. LA is so spread out and it's all kind of communities. The critters are all still here. The deer yep. are here. I'm never driving through the Hollywood Hills when I this deer took like an eight foot leap off a cliff yep. in front of my car, like out of nowhere. My favorite story though is there's a I, I work for a German group on occasion that does a lot of stuff and they'll bring in these kids from all over the country to do um, basically like a, a youth hostel mm-hmm. slash internship program. And I think these kids were from Austria or something. And I was editing something, and I hear shrieks from the backyard. So I kind of run out and see what's going on. And they're like, I think it's a chupacabra, You know, because they had no idea what they were saying. I was like, there's no fucking chupacabra. What are you talking about? And it was an opossum. Right. But with those gnarly teeth and being from Austria, where I guess the opossum population isn't quite what it is here. No. Man, they were freaked out. Because I think it was like... Yeah, and freaking. then and then the baby parade came behind them. I was like, "Y'all gotta calm down." Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're gonna live here. You're gonna have to be able to take more than a damn possum. Believe me. Yeah, man, it's a trip because LA, you think you know, urban and entities, and at the same time, yeah, when I live where I live, there's um, quite often I hear the coyotes yelping, oh, right, God. like literally under backyard. my window where they've just loaded something. They're having a feast and all of that. So it's just. Now it's speaking intense. of coyotes, 
because you have a definite concern now. What's up with Conan? Is he still with us? No, Conan decided uh, the damn dog. Um, we uh, we found the owner basically. So it's a happy story, reunited with his family. But I don't have a, now anymore a dog named Conan. That sucks. And so screw the owner. Who cares about the owner? Really? What about yeah. my feelings? What kind of owner just lets their dog loose yeah, like this? Yeah, I know. They're obviously, bastards. Well, I don't know. I but, guess he did the right thing. And um, since we're on a complete random tangent, let me go on one more, and then we say we have a regular yeah, introduction. We'll have to introduce somebody. Speaking of um, coyotes and raccoons, I just have this memory of um, being in Yosemite years and years ago. Night, there's nobody around, right? Everybody's either in their tent or in their cabin or whatever, and there's, you know, there's the moon is high, you can see everything, but there's no one human being who's moving in the valley at nice. night. I'm walking around, and it's awesome, right? I have it all to myself. And I'm trailing this uh, group of uh, raccoons. There are actually quite a few. There are like seven or eight who are like trailing around, looking for trash. They don't really mind me as long as I stay like 20, 30 feet away. I, I'm allowed to trail along, and they are fine. And, and they are doing the funniest thing. They are like looking for food, and then they fight each other a little, and then a couple of raccoons start having sex in a corner, and then they... So there's all this wild raccoon activity going on, and all of a sudden I see this one coyote who's like stalking them, right? And he's like aiming for them. And you can clearly see the coyotes going like, dinner, 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 you know, it's my dinner. And he start coming up close, and the raccoons realize it. All of them just start going, and they get really pissed. The coyote gets scared shitless. He's like, take off running like crazy, because he's like, hey, I just wanted a bite. What the fuck? Why are you guys so mad? You There's know, seven like, of you guys. Yeah, it, but it was hilarious to see them. They got so mad and scared the hell out of the coyotes. I had a blast. My, uh, my night with the raccoons was fun. <laughs> In any case, on that note... Yeah, speaking of start. nature... Yeah. Um... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Today we're going to have a very intense conversation in regard to environmental issues, in regard to life, the universe, how punching people in the face help you become a better environmentalist and <laughs> things like that. Taylor Parker, you're with us. Uh, well, you guys are going to hear it. Um, I'm not even going to go too long into it right now. because no, it's, it's a great conversation. It's, up. Um, it's, it's Chris Ryan level, everybody. It's yeah, fascinating and fun. A lot of fun. A uh, couple of things I want to mention. One, well, speaking of environmental things, a word to our sponsor, that's Sarah. Um, this one thing... Among the many, many, many reasons why I dig their stuff, beside the fact that they make awesome bags, beside the fact that, you know, the Chinese hemp army we discussed last time, beside, you know, many other reasons, there's the environmental factor of it. The fact that uh, all their products are made of hemp. Hemp is one of the most sustainable, environmentally friendly crops out there. When you compare it to cotton, pff, give me a break. Cotton is like more often than not grown in really nasty fashion that have a negative environmental impact. Not so with hemp. So that's yet one more reason why I dig their stuff. And if you guys are in the market for computer bags, backpacks, uh, he, he just gave me shirts. They made some T-shirts that are really cool. You know, any of the above made of hemp, that's the way to go. Uh, if nothing else, you're saving the environment. But not in the United States because hemp is illegal. Yeah, that's the hilarious thing. You know, you can own these things because somebody else in another part of the world grows hemp and they make the product and you can import the product, but you can't cultivate it in the U.S. It's like It'd be a shame if we could get some farmers some jobs. Yeah, I know. Totally demand. Anyway, but, let's not um, go down that trail. Yeah. Oh, and uh, in regard to that, Cesare, if you guys order, I forgot last time, 
sorry about that if you use uh, in your order form if you use the code just my name daniele which would be your stimulus for actually learning how to spell it which is daniel with an e at the end or lowercase you get a discount so make sure you do that if you're ordering something from their site and uh, we'll put the their site in the episode notes on our website so feel free to link from there um, speaking of sponsors also sure design t-shirts mm, as we mentioned before he hooked us up with some with our shirts with the drunken taoist t-shirts and uh, he also you know his own stuff is just amazing i really really have been wearing a couple of shirts he sent me to the point where people downwind started saying hey man go take a shower change the shirts because come on but i really like them so much i never wanted to get rid of them my only fear is i'm hoping gandhi's getting his cut because uh, i do like that, that design yeah. there's one with hendrix that's awesome too did you get but, the octopus uh, no, I got an Hendrix one. I got one with Ganesh, you know, the yeah, Hindu yeah, god the with elephant the elephant head. Uh, I got a couple of those. but um, And that too, if you guys order some of the Sure Design t-shirts, uh, use the code WARRIOR and you get 10% off. So that's another thing. Uh, oh, speaking of t-shirts, our own shirt, the Drunken Taoist. So we are done with pre-orders because now we got them. We shipped most of them. There are a few guys who um, it, I haven't gotten around yet, but there are, you know, they are probably coming by the time this episode release. They are either arriving in the mail or getting close. If you haven't received anything, uh, I would say by mid-March, definitely shoot me an email because by then they have all gone out so if you haven't received it and you know you ordered it email me and we'll check to see what's going on uh, if you are planning to order one now now that the pre-orders are done basically what you need to do is just shoot me an email uh, either through the contact form at the drunken taoist or just to me straight um, b-o-d-h-i-1974 at yahoo.com and tell me what color you want, whether the red or the gray, what size, and where you live. That way I can get a vague sense of um, shipping costs, because, man, that was a bad surprise. Those of you guys who don't live in the United States, Jesus Christ, that it, costs a lot It's not $4? Of money. No, it's not. God damn it. Even <laughs> Canada was like 9 bucks. Uh, not to mention Japan or Portugal or something. It was like, yeah, so not happy with that. But um, You know, speaking of shipping... Guess what I got in the mail today? What, what, what? I got my copy of Undefeated. Have you ever seen that? It was mm-hmm. last year's Academy Award winner for Best Documentary, and I've been waiting for months for this thing. Not only did I go see it in the theater twice, which is beyond, well, I saw it, and then I had to bring my wife to see it, too. I cried three times. Now, that's ridiculous, and I was worried about that, but then I found out that P. Diddy also cried three times, so I didn't feel I had lost my masculinity. But I ordered it through Amazon... And now it arrived. That's beautiful. Did you use our link? Absolutely. You're the man. So you guys do the same. If you're you, you ordering anything on Amazon, please use our link and we'll love you for it. And check out Undefeated. I don't want to give anything away. It's a it's the, the, the dregs of Memphis high school football that finally get their moment. And the story of the coach that if we had a few more coaches like that, and this would be the most incredible place in the world to live. So That's a good speech, except that your PDD reference by now just degraded you to, you know, we can't take anything you'll ever say seriously again. I didn't think anybody was in the first place. Okay. So. <laughs> cool. That makes me feel like some chocolate. Yeah, chocolate. Yes. Um, we had the contest by now. When we're recording, we haven't picked the winner yet, but we will within the next few days. So by the time we record, anybody who entered, um, who sent us an email, will get an email back letting you know what's up. 
if um, if nothing else um, the website by the way for um, feelgreatchocolate.com uh, will redirect you to Curacao where you can place your order and uh, there as well you can use a code I believe is my name I'll try to find out and put it in the episode notes I think is my name that you can get a discount for any chocolate you order and uh, amount you know not that chocolate needs any reasons for ordering because it's damn chocolate you you, you need to get it because that's it but beside the fact that it tastes freakishly good that it's curiously healthy and i mean that's bizarre considering we're speaking of chocolate but the way these guys do it they are health freaks and chocolate fanatics so that's a good combo and last but not least not to sound sexist but is your self-defense against pms whether you are a woman and you're dealing with that big plus or whether you're somebody who's dealing with somebody with pms wear it like a shield in either case yes throw chocolate at the beast and everything will work out better now we got some of the um uh, excuse me, the coconut sort of almond joy-esque ones oh man i tried one with coconut the other oh, day that was the um, i think so they call it blonde blondie bar i think that's it jesus Oh my god i was i don't even like coconut that much but when uh, you know i like Man, it was amazing. It was because they also do the high end, like eighty-seven percent. That's almost a little too much for me. Do you like that? Which one? It's just like eighty-seven percent coca. That's like wow. I need mine mixed down a little bit. Yeah, no, I dig. I go. I shoot it straight in vein, so I need hundred and twenty-five. The beautiful part about the world: a little something for everybody. Right. What did we forget? Do we have donations? Um. Yeah, I'm gonna mention. Oh yeah, might as well mention it now. So donations. Uh. Okay. Sorry, guys. Let the butchering begin. Yeah. The well, I think I can manage a Ryan Peterson. Uh, which, by the way, runs a blog called uh, slowcarbchef.com. So, again, slowcarbchef.com. Check it out. Vincent Arrogancia. Cynt- oh, my God. This <laughs> Cynthia has a curious last name. It's spelled K-A-C-I-A-N. And uh, she put it, it's spelled as in syndication. So it's like Cynthia Cation or something like that. And uh, the evil woman wanted to call her daughter Forna, which would make first and last name fornication which would have been really evil wow. but luckily she had better thoughts and decided not to do that to her poor daughter that's pretty rough i, I grew up with a guy whose name was peter jeter i mean what could be crueler than that <laughs> that's messed up i'm thinking you know rhyme freaks come on really wrong travis marsot jay pomerville david lloyd stephen flora i think i can manage some more without butchering them let's try no maybe not aaron bertram Bertram, something like that. Beth Riederford, Troy Holm, uh, Jason Mandala or Mandala, uh, Richard Depuy, or yeah, that I don't know. I took, took a guess. Sorry, Richard, and Donald Cunningham. I almost made it. I That's think I only screwed up like two or three. That's great. And yeah, you guys donated to the podcast. Thank you so much for doing that. And if you listening, feel like doing the same, we never, ever, ever will reject your money. Trust us. So we'll, you know, we don't reject if you just listen. That's sweet anyway. Uh, if you listen and send us your money, that's also sweet. If you turn other people on to listening, there are lots of ways to be sweet. Employ them. Oh, speaking of which, one sentence that I used this week in the course of lecture that I, ne- I don't think any human being has ever used I was explaining how in World War, the beginning of World War II, France and England didn't really want to get into the war with Germany, didn't feel like it. So when Hitler started invading Czechoslovakia, 
he invaded the first part and they were like oh god you know we're, we are supposed to stop him but we don't really want to do it and stuff so i was explaining to my students their rationale and i said how france and england address hitler saying come on hitler just be a sweetie and stop invading right now, would you? And I was thinking, come on, Hitler, be a sweetie. I think he's a first in human history. I don't think too many people have used that so far, but in any case. Uh, just <laughs> I think you and Mel Brooks may be the only ones. Yeah, it could be. But Hitler just responded, I'm just going to put the tip in. So... <laughs> and last thing, so we can get rolling. Um, Daisy House Music. Um yes. They released their album, the whole thing. So I'll put the link where you can order not just the one song that we use for our intro, but also all their other stuff. It's on. So check them out. Uh, and last but not least, um, Paul Clawiter. If you guys recall, Paul Clawiter done an animation for a story that I had done about Tigers and Strawberry on uh, Duncan Trussell podcast. Yes, this was awesome. He's done a new one about, uh, I think it was either the second episode or something like that when I told the story of Gonzalo Guerrero. He did this really long, like five plus minute animation. It's beautifully done. We'll put a link in the episode notes. Check it out on uh, YouTube. And while you're checking stuff out on YouTube, if you want to check out a teaser that we had done before we ever released the first episode of The Drunken Taoist, we did this video where there's my best godfather impersonation where uh, Rich is doing his own super intro. It's, it's fun. It's only like a minute long or something. So if you guys want to check it out, that was fun. We'll put the links to all that. I'm awfully happy you're here because I figured you might be in fear of my almost um, Nostradamic level of uh, predicting the meteor strike in Russia oh, on yes. the last podcast. Please rub our nose into it. Well, I just, you know, I, I'll be making more predictions shortly. So everyone be ready. Uh, the February 15th hit perfectly. Nobody actually hit in the head, but uh, 1,500 people with broken windows. Watch out, folks. The meteors are coming. So if you guys want to, you need psychic readings, Rich will be I'll be happy to, to see if I can see something in my crystal ball. Yeah. I think it's time. Away we go. Okay, guys, this time I have my math in order, so I know, you know, I didn't say math. I'm not consuming crystal meth yet. Uh, math, as in adding numbers and all of that stuff. And we are on episode 11 of the Drunken Taoist podcast. Here with us today, Taylor Parker. Taylor, thank you so much for coming here. My pleasure. And we are going to be chatting about life, the universe, everything, all that good stuff. But so let's... Um, well, let's start out with the basics. Just who the hell are you? What are you doing? Uh, and, uh, you know, I kind of know the answer, but, you know, let's just play with uh, um, the reason why part of this conversation will happen is there's you have a clearly a driving passion for certain topics that I find myself also very much passionate about. Love to hear your take on it. I'm a restoration oncologist. Mm -hmm. I have a restoration oncology uh, company. Mm -hmm. And uh, our focus, our entire focus is to save wetlands, save endangered species, and teach our community, specifically uh, local school children, about it. That's what I do. How does it work? Like somebody, you pick up a contract with, um, who gives you contracts? Yeah, great question. 
I work primarily with nonprofits and local municipalities. So mm-hmm. primarily I work in uh, in Long Beach, East mm-hmm. Long Beach specifically. I work on two of the most amazing restoration projects in California. I've got a project, uh, the Colorado Lagoon. It's a $12 million restoration project. It's easily going to be over $25 million when it's finished. Mm-hmm. We're working on that. And the whole purpose is to save wetlands. I've got another project. It's Los Cerritos Wetlands. It's in North Orange County um, and, and Long Beach also. And again, save wetlands, restore wetlands uh, for the home, for the wetland creatures, specifically the endangered species that live there. How exactly, how does the process work? I mean, I'm not, you know, asking you a total blow by blow, like, and then I add some mud to this pot and then we put, but, you know, exactly You'd like. You'd have to kick me out at that right? point. <laughs> <laughs> at least just to get a vague picture of what exactly entails. Yeah. So a public agency or a nonprofit has a habitat that is degraded. They bring in somebody like my company to figure out how it's degraded. Uh, what kind of plants do we have on site? What kind of plants could we get on site? How bad is our water quality? How good is our water quality? What are the different kinds of things that we can do for that? Mm-hmm. I bring the environmental scientists that work for me, uh, my business partner also. He's an environmental scientist. And he goes out and we figure that out. We do an assessment. And then we write up a plan or we work with the p- different partners that we have and we try to figure it out and fix it. How does it reach the point where someone realizes they have a problem? I mean, it sounds like, especially in our society, people are like, fuck it, you know, ruined is ruined. Yeah. And between invasive species and the million other problems that we have, it's amazing that anybody at all would be willing to say, hey, let's spend $50 million fixing this. Exactly. That's exactly it. I think you work in miracles. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, um, on the good days, I feel that we're working miracles too. Um, on the uh, on most days, on the bad days, it's uh, oh my god, I get so overwhelmed by everything that's going on. I was familiar with some groups that did some restoration of the Colorado River, which was amazing stuff. I mean, it was, looks pristine when it's done, but those folks wanted a great place to fish. Mm-hmm. Is there always like something yes. that somebody has to gain? My property value would be better if we were not sitting on a sewer. We call those beneficial uses. So there's multiple beneficial uses. Um, personally, my personal ethic is I'm more concerned with the beneficial uses for the environment, but it doesn't mean that I can ignore the beneficial uses for fishing, for recreation, for boating. I can't ignore that. If I do, then I'm dead as a right. as an environmental scientist. Of course, because there's uh, if there's no money somewhere at some point, nobody's going to invest in it, it. Right? Exactly. So one of my projects, the Colorado Lagoon. Um, this is a, a multi-agency project. It's led by the city of Long Beach. I work for the um, the nonprofit, the Friends of Colorado Lagoon, great advocacy group that started and as little rebels, but then they uh, they started going forward and being progressive with their with their action. The reason they got started, and there's multiple reasons, but one of the main reasons is our little 18 acre wetland had the third worst water quality in the state of California. Wow, I mean it's bad. Right, the E. coli that was going in there, the stuff. I mean, it was making people sick. I mean, if you got that bad, you might as well shoot for number one because it's embarrassing to be number three worst <laughs> water quality. It's like, come on, be shoot for the top. Right, right. we had two choices to go: either yeah. go uh, go worse or go better. Yeah, because uh, otherwise it's just embarrassing. It's- exactly. Was it raw sewage? Was it sewage? Well, actually, there's a couple things. One is we. It's an 11 acre water body. Before we started our restoration in 2009, we had 11 storm drains dropping into an 11-acre water body, completely unmitigated, completely unfiltered. 
just going right in from a fairly large watershed uh, of the of the city. Yike. And then we call it uh, the urban slobber, the slobber coming down from the city. I mean, that's everything. It's the it's the dog feces that wasn't picked up. It's the motor oil. It's the everything coming right into this habitat. Dead raccoons and the, the whole deal, right? Yeah. Over-fertilized lawns. Exactly. It's all that stuff. And so there's two main problems that that causes. Stuff in the water column, everything from the top of the ocean floor to the top of the, or the I guess the end of the, the water, everything in that water column, and then everything within the marine sediment. So the water, the water column is everything that the humans interact with. We swim in that water column when you go to the beach and you surf in there and whatever, and that's where the E. coli is. That stuff gets in your mouth, that gets in your eyes, it gets in your ears, makes you sick. If you're already sick or if you're a kid or if you're an older person, you're done. Oh, gross. Yeah, bad stuff. Exactly. <laughs> yes. That's exactly what it is. So that was a huge issue. But more importantly, uh, for the humans, but then also for the ecosystem, is the stuff that we don't deal with every day, mm-hmm. that doesn't make you sick. The heavy metals, the lead, the mercury, the cadmium. The Does in Metallica kind of thing? Or yeah, exactly. different kind of heavy metal? <laughs> Those heavy metals, yeah. Yeah, yeah they're dry. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Uh, Those are coming down the storm drains also. They're also coming with a bunch of poisons, the DDTs, the PCBs, the PAHs, all these synthetic things. And those go down the storm drains and they get into the, into the sediment. And those are the things that cause the cancers. Those are the things that cause the f- physiological changes in the animals. And we had a, a really bad spot. So before our restoration, bad, bad sediment, bad water quality, and that impacted the habitat. So then our habitat is low, uh, low, lower quality. And so those are some of the things we had to fix. And um, we, we have, we're almost, uh, we're about halfway done. And we've addressed those two major, major issues. We put filters on the storm drains. Uh, we directed some of the storm drains to the sewer system where they actually get treated before they go directly into the ocean. We, um, we put uh, bioswales, which are basically ditches with plants that come out and they filter the, filter the water. And then this last, uh, starting a year ago, February 2012 to August 2012, we removed 63,000 cubic yards of contaminated sediment. And it's just poison. 63,000 cubic yards is a large amount of sediment. What do you do with that? There's a couple things you do. Put it in Utah. <laughs> That's one of them. That's one of the things you do. You take it to a site that is a, a, contaminated, oh. a, a contaminated site. Or you have a contract with McDonald's and uh, it goes straight into the kitchen. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> no comment on that one. 39 uh, cents Big Mac uh, exactly. with a couple of additives. To save you some money. Yeah. Uh, that's one of the things you do. You take it to a contaminated site and you bury it. Uh, the other thing you do is you take it to another contaminated site and you burn it. You incinerate the whole thing. Uh, those are really expensive. To be able to find a site that can take it to transport all that material to another site is really expensive. So one of the things we had to do as practical, pragmatic, um, environmental people, so we had to start making partnerships. And so the city of Long Beach made a partnership with uh, the Port of Long Beach. And the Port of Long Beach wants to expand their Middle Harbor project because that's what they're doing. And so to do that, they need fill. They need material. 
They ended up taking our contaminated sediment, mixing it with a cement slurry. And then that is what is part of their Middle Harbor project. And that cement slurry keeps our poison, keeps all our contamination in that cement for the next 2,500 years. Wow. And it doesn't degrade into the, into the environment. Well, you know, they do have all those additional containers because we ain't got jack shit to ship back for the rest of the world. So why don't we just fill those up and ship it back to China? <laughs> they can mix China it with their new coal-powered plants. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, while you're talking about this, one thing that... Well, two things, actually. Have you ever seen the studies where if you put sunflowers into the con- contaminated oil or, or contaminated earth, that they will remove a lot of the heavy metals? Now, the problem is then you have to destroy the contaminated sunflowers. Not necessarily. But yes. So you've seen that. Yeah, that's um, that's the idea behind the bioswales that we plant. Okay, that's what I, yeah, that's what I made me think of it. It's called phytoremediation. Uh, so you plant the plants uh, in a, in a certain area, and they then uptake it. Um, it doesn't necessarily get rid of it, but it, it does move it. And so depending it, what it does is it moves it from a water body specifically. Right. Um, so then it, it gets it out of there. So if the water is moving, it doesn't drop it into a, a larger water body and poison all the fish and poison all the animals. And that's where all these kill zones come from that you hear about. Gulf of Mexico has them. Do we have them on our coast at all yet? Or is it something that just hasn't reared its head yet? Uh, yes and no. So there's the different kill zones uh, where the, the ocean floor is just dead. Um, that's one of the definitions of a, of a kill zone. The other one is the, where the algal blooms, right. those toxic algal, the algal blooms come out. So we've definitely experienced the algal blooms and you'll see that on a hot July or August day, you'll see those algal blooms out, out off the coast. But, uh, the kill zones, I think they're just now starting to see those. I'm, I'm not a marine bio- biologist, so I don't know exactly, but, uh, they're, they're starting to pop up. Yeah. It's uh, it's incredible. It it's incredible. an incredible science. It's an incredible study. Well, at least you know you got a steady gig from now till thirty thirty seven. Job security, right? Yeah, I mean, the destruction is, is is it's embarrassing. It is. It is embarrassing. Um, it's embarrassing as humans. The the things that we've done. It's understandable. Well, we're just we're basically just well uh, evolved bacteria. Yeah. But we still behave just like bacteria. We consume till it's gone shit everywhere and just leave a dried husk of of worthlessness because on a historical perspective we haven't had to think otherwise oh yeah who would ever think you could empty the ocean right right exactly now when have you ever seen these dredges oh yeah and they throw 70 percent of what they dredge up dead back into the water but you've destroyed something that will not be replaced for a thousand years yeah and just don't even think about it so somebody can have a fucking McBite, uh, fish McBite. That's exactly it. That's exactly uh, And we haven't had to worry about it. And, we're worried now. And so you can look at it in two different ways. One is, I think, the traditional environmentalist way, and I think what, which is why environmentalists get a really bad rap, is because the traditional way to look at it is doom and gloom, and, oh, it's so horrible, the world is going to shit and all that. So I'm sorry, just to interrupt you there, uh, you think that the the bad rap that environmentalists get is primarily due to the um, sort of catastrophic, apocalyptic description where people just get bummed out and they feel like, shut up already, I don't want to hear it. Is that, you feel, the main thing? Or, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, that, I think that and the fact that um, environmentalists, mm-hmm. um, to group us all together, right. <laughs> uh, they are passionate very passionate right. individuals 
And that passion can be expressed in a lot of different ways. And so there, you know, you get the the, the literal tree huggers that mm-hmm. attach themselves to a tree right. and are, allow the cops to put mace in their eyes. And that passion comes across to a lot of people as just this whack job, this mm. nut job is out there. And so I'm not going to take him seriously because he's just he's just crazy. So I think both of those. Mm-hmm. It's the you talk about global climate change. Most people, they just shut down. They're like, what, what, what can I do? That's right. a horrible thing. It's too big. I can't impact it. I don't, I don't want to hear it. Don't tell me about that. And so you, you get labeled as that, uh, that environmentalist. Because, I mean, when you think about it, it's weird that even the concept of environmentalist, because it shouldn't even be a political issue or a label. When you think about it, it's just basic common sense. You know, you don't poison the drink, you the water you drink. You don't poison the air you breathe. It's just, it's not even a liberal or conservative issue. It's not a, and it's just anybody who wants to stay alive, just basic survival instinct doesn't fuck up the environment in which they live plain and simple that's it why is it not so plain and simple because i mean when you look at it the reality of it is so damn straightforward and self-evident that there shouldn't even be a discussion it should be like well of course that's what you need to do to make sure you don't uh, screw up the very conditions that make your life possible near thinking primates right well that's where we are um and i think that's the reason is we are conditioned over millions of years uh, over hundreds of thousands of years as a as a civilization to take care of the things that are around us to be the best primates that we can be uh, for our tribe for our families for for our children and uh, we're really good at that we are tremendous at that we are better than any other species on the planet at that and that's what we know how to do we we have it in our genes we have it in every single cell in our bodies and so when you start to talk about, you know, larger things, uh, things outside of yourself, things that are your home, your larger home, home that is home for other primates that you have never met and you're never going to meet, that's a difficult thing to get across. We don't have the cognitive, we, we have not evolved the cognitive capacities to think about that, which is a weird thought process. So it's just kind of short-term thinking about mine and mine right now and uh, screw what happens 50 yards away from me because it's not my territory. That's the theoretical the, thing behind it, but then right. when you get down to the pragmatics and the dollars and cents, I mean, that's the big argument about anything environmental is, yeah, but you're going to put these regulations on me and you're going to stop me from manufacturing or right. you're going to stop me from doing this. That's going to cost me money. That's going to cost the consumer money. And that's the big argument. And I, I love and I hate that argument. Right. It's, it's a great argument. It's a great argument because you do. You get that tax and you see it. But then I hate that argument. Be- I listened to Mary Nichols uh, speak last week. She is the head of the Air Resource Board in California. Mm-hmm. One of the most powerful women that I've ever heard speak. And uh, she, she just expressed, she expressed it so perfectly. She said, California is the ninth largest economy in the world and has been sustainably growing for decades, without question, just going forward. And we're, we're just strong. Right. We also have precedent setting environmental regulations and we have since 1976 in the Coastal Act, when the Coastal Act was passed. And other countries, other governments come to us and they say, how do we engage with the environment? How do we set up environmental regulations? And she said, there's no distinction. There's no difference. Right. They're one and the same. We can allow our economy to grow. 
we can allow our environmental regulations to grow and they're not different. And so she says, you know, the, the reason we're growing is because we are bringing the best and the brightest to California. We have some of the industry leaders here in California. We have Silicon Valley. Uh, we have uh, all the recreational companies, um, Quicksilver, uh, Hurley, all of those in Orange County. We have the video game industry in Marina Del Rey. Right. You're bringing the most creative people, and they want to be around life. They want to be around bio. They want to you know, breathe clean air and be in that water and go surfing. And there's not a difference. That's, you can grow both. And I love that. There's something that um, I guess... It's a second time during the course of the podcast at some point. I think in a very early episode, I brought up Jared Diamond, who's still you bastard. I've never replied to my email, so <laughs> I don't like you so much. But just like the first time, I actually do like you because there's um, one of the points that he made on the exact issue that you bring up. Environmental issues, yeah, that would be nice, but it costs too much. You know, kind of pitting these economy versus environmental mm -hmm. protection as two opposites fighting each other. It's a false dichotomy. Yeah. One of the things he says is that in the long run, you end up paying as a society much more, even just not in spiritual terms, in health terms, in, in dollar and cents, in strictly economic terms. Mm -hmm. He say you pay much more by not taking care of your environment than you do. Because when you have to address some of the problems that come out of it, whether it is because of clear cutting of forest and soil erosion and, you know, mudslides and all the destruction that those creates, whether it is because of poisoning of the ocean, whether it is of, for a million different reasons, the point is once you start trying to fix those problems that you have to deal with as a society, it costs you way more yep. money than how much money was made by not taking care of, uh, by not, you know, developing the economy in a sustainable way in the first place. Mm -hmm. The difference is the people who make the money in the first place, they tend to be one particular industry at most their employees. That's about it. The, they make money. The cost that, the much bigger cost that end up being paid down the road is paid by the entire society. Mm -hmm. So there's no incentive for a particular company to be green in that regard because if they can make money and pass the cost to somebody else, works for them, mm -hmm. right? So in that sense, that's where, but from a social standpoint, even from an economic standpoint for the health of the whole country, it makes no sense, this economy versus environment dichotomy, because it's not, it doesn't work that way. You right. pay more. And so and there's no end to it, is there? I mean, the profiteers are always long gone when the time the bill arrives. But like, here's what's so exciting about mm -hmm. the moment that we live in now right. is that there are people who are very, very smart, very, very passionate, and actually have some pull that are changing those kinds of mm -hmm. those that false logic. Um, there's some great examples up in uh, Washington, the fisheries up in Washington. Global climate change is acidifying the ocean. And that's one of the things that's happening. It's, it's being proven left and right. That's just what's happening. And one of the things that that does is it is killing the oyster larvae up in Washington. So the oyster larvae don't have the ability to live within that specific pH, and so they're, they're dying. Well, this hundreds of millions of dollar industry of oysters and that fishery is literally gone. It's just gone. And so they brought in all the scientists and they said, what are we doing? What's going on here? Why can't I grow oysters? I'm trying everything. And so the scientists went in, they figured out that it's the acidification of the ocean water that they're pulling in. The acidification is higher, I think, in the morning 
And then um, just because of the way the ocean functions and they uh, said, you know, bring your water in to your fisheries, to your hatcheries uh, at nighttime, do a couple other things. And it saved that fishery. Wow. And so the fishery industry looked at that and they said, wow, this is a global climate issue. This is an environmental issue. And we just put some energies toward it. We put a few resources toward it, minuscule to the larger, larger mm-hmm. idea. And they saved that industry. They saved the jobs of the people that were working there. And they saved the, the, the big, the people that own the large companies, you know, the, the right. fat cats that we were talking about earlier. They saved them. Right. But just, it was increasing your paradigm a little bit. Yeah. The cool part about that is they then took that case study and they're sharing it with the East Coast fisheries and said, you're going to experience this. You haven't yet for different reasons, but you're going to. They're starting to share it with other fisheries around the world. And they said, look, you're going to experience this. Start paying attention. And uh, the East Coast fisheries said, yeah, you know, we, we're starting to see it. And so those kinds of things, are, those systematic changes are happening. I think there's a culture, a cultural shift that is starting to change. Are those oyster farms, are they more... Are they more farm-like, or are they more natural habitats that they that they just harvest? Those particular ones, I don't know. Okay. Um, it's called aquaculture. I've seen different kinds of aquaculture. Um, the ones that I've seen around here are basically pier pilings that are out in the water. And so you allow the natural, systematic oceanic process to occur right but it's just within one little area i don't know if you've ever uh, up in morro bay used to be um abalone heaven yeah and they literally took them all wiped and, it out and, and nothing yeah it was nothing i don't think it was even ecological at that point it was just they took them all and what do you know no more eggs no more abalone and there are pictures from probably the 40s or the 50s where there are mounds mounds, mounds of the abalone right. shells and they went through it all and they gobbled it all up and now it's gone and they still to this day are trying to yeah re-establish that yeah so maybe it's your next gig well, uh, it's funny that you bring that up man morro bay is is my source of inspiration i, it, I go there from no kidding. Cambria is. I, I love it, man. I get up there every year to go camping. Yeah. And speaking of your source of inspiration, how does, how did you get here? You know, how do you go and say I'm going to become, a, you know, it's like he was skateboarding with Mike V one after. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely wasn't doing that. Um, it's kind of a weird circuitous route. Mm-hmm. I uh, I originally went to school to be a lawyer. <laughs> and not an environmental lawyer. Uh, I originally went to school to be a, a lawyer and, and Give FBI. Give me my money, motherfucker. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I was in criminal justice at Cal State Long Beach, and I was studying that, and I was just listening to the stuff the teachers were pumping into my heads, and I could not, I couldn't relate. I couldn't understand it. I couldn't believe what they were saying. And um, I just, I couldn't do it. And so I, I started university um, the September of September 11th, uh, mm-hmm. two, uh, 2001. Um, That's funny, man. That's the, um, that was the very first semester I was teaching at Cal State Long Beach. Oh, no kidding. Yep. Not in criminal justice, I hope. <laughs> no. no, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, by the way, my theory for why things change for you while you are at Cal State Long Beach is because you are downwind and you caught one of my brain waves. Uh, 
indirectly brainwashing you. Oh, that's I, that, why you ended up where, where I was going was I was going to give you full credit, actually. That's, so, yeah. that's always <laughs> the right thing to do. Doesn't matter what we're talking about, what the point is, what that's always... I like it. I'm glad you're on the same All right, wavelength. good. All right, I'll remember that. Uh, but yeah, so I was in those classes. I couldn't understand it. I didn't get it. And uh, September 11th happens, and I'm just... You know, it's shocking as a new university student. And then the way that the, the government started dealing with that issue, I I couldn't, I, it just didn't make sense. There was this dissonance in my head. I just... You didn't think going shopping was the answer? Yeah, no. When they, oh. when they came out with the Jeep Liberty ads, oh. I was, I, it just didn't make sense. And then when they started, you know, we're going to go to war. Well, I mean, that didn't make sense to me. I was like, well, why are we going to go to war? And it just, I don't know. So I started wanting to protest the war. And I didn't know how. What do you, why do you hate America? So? Yeah, why, why do you hate America? <laughs> well, I wanted to protest the war, and I didn't know how. And they had these peace rallies and these peace marches in Long Beach. And I went to a couple of them. And I saw that they were doing something. I saw that other people were taking notice. I saw that they were gathering more people. But it wasn't, in my mind, it wasn't effective. It wasn't there. Let me take you on a tiny tangent, because otherwise that takes us far away and uh, we lose track. So um, quick question regarding the war, and we're talking still just Afghanistan war, right? Not Iraq. Yeah, you know, I don't even know. It just all blended in. Right, because uh, to me, it's like Iraq, I mean, it was such an obvious bullshit. The whole rationale, the explanation, the justification, all of it just made no sense. And it had nothing to do with Al-Qaeda, it had nothing to do with anything. You know, Afghanistan, the reason why some people were much more willing to go the Afghan route than the Iraqi route was that... Um, being having a government that was shielding al-qaeda and all of that you know the assumption was if you guys are the ones who did the bombing and you have a government in afghanistan that's protecting them then yeah you need to go to war to take them out and so on and so forth now i'm clearly that's why we attack saudi arabia right oh wait wait (laughs) i get confused i'm sorry (laughs) right but um i guess you know the um, some people sometimes tend to um it interests me to me when like people tend to separate or they keep together like uh, i'm kind of curious about that but um i just realized as i'm going into it that i'm totally taking you on a different tangent <laughs> that will lead us far, far in a galaxy far far away where we don't want to go so no sorry i'll shut up um to take you back um part of what you were saying is that you felt that political activism that you were involved in wasn't delivering the results that you were you felt like eh, you know it, it, it's not as effective as it could and should be right what was the transition from there to going environmental yeah that's i mean that, that's exactly it i wasn't feeling effective mm-hmm. i wasn't feeling like my actions were producing anything right. worthwhile so i i looked at a couple other things i looked at i don't know i think i was reading books to sick kids or something just you know mm-hmm. just something that i could feel like i was yep. doing something worthwhile and i f- i came across this flyer or something to help out some environmental nonprofit and i did and i went spent my weekend down there and i planted some plants and i started watering plants and i don't think i'd ever done that before and i i wasn't an environmentalist by any means at that point i didn't even have you know my thought process together in that in that realm 
But I just knew, I mean, intuitively, I knew that what I was doing was was a positive thing. I was putting plants in the ground. I was building more home for things that weren't me. Mm-hmm. And it, I don't know, it was just, I felt it. I mean, long story short, I was, I just did that and I was, I became good at it and I started learning all the plants mm-hmm. and I started learning uh, how to, uh, the theories behind it. I started working for the nonprofit that I was volunteering for. And then I started managing uh, some of the projects, and I just kind of grew in that organization over a period of a few years. So this was completely outside of school? Completely outside of school. And then at that point, I I was working for a law office. I was working for a couple other jobs. And I I had to pay my way through university. So uh, there came a point where I made that decision, well, this is actually really satisfying. And so I decided to start working for that nonprofit, and I quit working for the for the lawyers. I quit doing that, and I paid my way through school by doing environmental work. Same. So yeah, that's impressive. <laughs> do you ever take a moment to reflect what we might have been able to do with three trillion dollars instead of buying helicopters and artillery shells? Yeah. I mean, how much repair? Would that, I mean, is there any way you can quantify that? Yeah. It, quantifying things in the environmental realm is, is it's a challenge. It's got to be slippery. There, there, there's, ability, there's metrics to do it, um, but there's challenges also. Where it comes completely home to me is I've got a contract right now to, for this, this plant. This plant only exists between Santa Barbara and Mexico, um, uh, basically Tijuana. It only exists on the coast. It only exists in nine places. If it dies in those nine places, it does not exist on this planet anymore. And I have this contract with the United States Fish and Wildlife Service, and they worked for three years within their government agency to get funding to put this plant in more places between Santa Barbara and Mexico. They fought for three years to get funding for it, and when they finally did, they got $20,000. And these are scientists. These are people that are well-trained in this field, uh, much more well-trained than I am. They know the species. They know There are action plans on how to take species off the endangered species list. They know how to do it. And they got those that $20,000, and I got that contract, and I'm working on it. And I'm looking at that, and then you know you see this dichotomy, you see this difference, and you're like, "That's what you got." My suggestion would be start uh, passing the news around that if you smoke or inhale or rub that plant onto your nose, you start seeing wild magic visions. <laughs> and just by placebo effect, you're gonna have about twenty percent of the people who try the will something amazing will happen to them. Yeah. <laughs> You'll have that plant growing in every garden in the universe. So it's funny that you bring that up because I was on that same... I'll give you credit again. <laughs> I was thinking those same things. I was like, you know, some of these endangered species, those animals, whatever, right. you know, you, you maybe you make it have some quality that, you know, humans value. Yeah. And I, there are case studies that that actually works. But the thing that shut me down on that was um, peyote. Mm-hmm. Peyote is 
being considered for the endangered species list. Right. Because there's all these peyote heads that want to go out and Too many end up pulling people. it out of the yeah. desert. Yep. Yep. And yep. so it's it's not necessarily a bad thing to right. do that, but it's just got to be managed. You got to you yep. got to be you got to have that that other part of your brain working. Yeah. And that's the day Rich started his peyote farm. Yeah. <laughs> Twenty <laughs> years later. Exactly. Yeah. What's the problem with that? Is it hard to grow? Is that what it is? I think it is. Yeah. Real specific. It's right? a very small plant. Um, God, I'm outing myself here. <laughs> it's a uh, it's a very uh, small plant. It takes a very very long time to grow. It needs very specific conditions. It can't get mm. too much water. It can't get too little water. It, yeah, and it, it just grows in a very um, specific area. So putting it in your garden somewhere, good luck growing that. Because yeah, you can. You definitely can. Right. Uh, you just need to know what you're doing. Right. With like most plants that you grow yeah. at home, if you know how to nurse it properly, yep, any plant will grow in yeah. it. Yeah. Not that I know anything about that. Yep. But I, I read it somewhere <laughs> on the internet. It's funny. Everything you mention, I, I will forever dream of that moment where George Bush was standing on the rubble pile, telling us all to go fucking shopping. That what if it was President Gore standing up there saying? Today, we cut our oil consumption by 30%. Mm-hmm. You want to do something, help out. Today, you know, we start fixing things instead of breaking things. I am so... It sucks because I'm so jaded and so cynical when, like, the big politicians say anything because it's sure. a systematic thing. But with that said, some of the things that the big politicians can do, they have so much more power than mm-hmm. you and I have. They have so much more power. And just even little decisions are so much more far-reaching than the things that we can do. And so, yes, I, I'm of the same mindset. Well, it's just there's so many giant problems now. Yeah. Like the plastic gyres that are showing up. In the, I mean, how do we fucking fix that? I yeah. Mean, do we literally go out in canoes and start scooping up? I guess I read that the plastic becomes microscopic after a while, that it will break down. It won't biodegrade, right. but it'll become these shattered little yeah. tiny pieces. So there's really... Oh, the plastic, really yeah. That. yeah. And I'll never forget down at the Scripps Aquarium and this was 15 years ago and who knows if it was a real number but they had in their little school aquarium that they had a little plaque that says every day Southern California pumps 4 billion gallons of raw sewage into the into the ocean yeah and I don't get the feeling that that's changed at all yes and no there it hasn't on the large scale, and it's actually increased in some capacities and in different ways. Holy shit. Well, I mean, more people are coming to Southern California. Yeah. It, this is the most amazing place to live. Um, That's true. It is, and so more people are coming. But again, go back to those environmental regulations. You can have more people to a limit, to a certain degree. You can continue living somewhat of the first world lifestyle that we're living you just got to change some things. You got to change your mindset. So some of the things that are being proposed and some of the things that are actually being implemented, they call them TMDLs, Total Maximum Daily Loads. And there are the State Water Board. I've had a few of those. Like, yeah, I, I was like, I'm, gonna, <laughs> I'm not going to say anything. Sorry, sorry. Duncan God, Trussell is not here, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's... that's uh, sorry about that. More of a technical term. I didn't even <laughs> think about that. Um, yeah. So there's these things, the, the regulations that they have. And what it does is it, these regulatory agencies put these on the different cities. So, for example, the river that runs through uh, the wetlands I work on, uh, the San Gabriel River, 
massive river. It has, um, it's like a 32 um, mile river that goes from the, uh, the San Gabriel Mountains to the ocean. It's got some, I think it's a 700 square mile watershed, hits all kinds of cities and it's massive. The TMDLs that are going on these different cities are requiring them to limit um, the amount of trash and the amount of waste going into this river because it, that's what our um, best management practice is right now is just dump it into the river, let the river dump it into the ocean. And so now they're, what they're doing is they're recognizing that upstream, you can start making some changes, put some filters on some storm drains, put some things on some things and just change some things up. And you can Im make a major impact on the ocean. And when you're living in Azusa, you don't think about the ocean. Right. Because you're not seeing it. Right. So. so I guess in a way, what you're saying is that the only way out, if there is a way out, is to try to figure out ways in which somebody who hear about environmentalist and start getting all like ah, poof, disgusting but starting to sell them not so much on a notion of um, you know save the earth or have a good idea like a philosophical change about interdependence of all things or anything it's just kind of show them these benefits you in this way that's maybe how you can change things in just by appealing to people personal sort of egotistic self-interest um yeah. even in the short term rather than just long term or something yeah i mean that's one of the ways i uh, that i try to work to change the culture especially where i live mm -hmm. that's one of the ways um there's a lot of different ways um that we've tried um and i, and I love talking about it because it's fun uh, you, you deal with people's egos you deal mm -hmm. with people's what they care about you know the dollars and the cents but then you also deal with you know their kids people care about their kids right and you say look did you grow up catching snakes and lizards and all that or rockfish yeah did you go fishing well there are facts the writings on the wall your kids will not be able to do that not just because of the pollution but because of the development we're losing the places to do that it's without question one of my most terrifying you know waking nightmares is that we will be the folks that were alive when the last tiger dies when the mm -hmm. last rhino dies. i mean mm -hmm. the, the amount of criminality behind that that if we stand by seven billion of us and don't do shit and just watch these amazing creatures go that's on us forever but why? Why does it matter? And that's the thing. Why does it matter if another species dies? Does it change your life? Yes. How? Not directly, but, you know, and I'm with you. You've got to fight this all the time because I'm sure the majority of people, especially Orange County people in their McMansions, could give three fucks about this plant that you're trying to save. But to me, you know, it takes the whole gang. And I don't think people realize that the interconnectedness of the biosphere is incredibly tight. Yeah. And pieces are falling off all the time. And we don't know which piece will be the one that makes it all collapse. Yeah. But if we just keep recklessly just letting shit die and who gives a shit? And I need a McBurger, so let's knock down another 10,000 acres of rainforest this week. It's going to get us. Yeah. So, I, you know, and maybe I am a fool. Maybe that is just foolishness. Because, you know, the Bible do say that the earth is here for the man to reap his good. <laughs> yeah. Interconnectedness, biodiversity, making fun of Mac. What are you, some kind of communist environmental pink of freak yeah that's pretty and much that's it. what i'm trying to change right. and i'm trying to yeah, change i don't know how you fight so, that either but the, yeah. the children aspect is exactly the way to go though do you want your children to enjoy these same things yeah. it does. but i'm afraid how many kids get to go out fishing now yeah. i mean 
shit, you're just lucky if they have a, a one parent that'll even pay them any attention anymore. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, strategy-wise, I guess, when you are saying, this, like, keywords like interconnectedness, you know, that type of stuff, which, by the way, if I could pronounce, that would help. But, <laughs> you know, things that, it's not to me, I know, philosophically are essential for anybody to get. But, you know, you and I and 10 other people talk about it. We got all excited. It's cool. To 90% of human beings, they're going to be like, shut up. I don't know what the hell you're talking about. And when I kind of vaguely get it, it bugs me anyway. So I don't care. And, you know, that argument is fun for preaching to the choir in a way for, you know, people who are already on that wavelength, not so much for everyone else. And I guess what you're saying is that in order to reach everyone else, which is the only way to make change happen, because, you know, change is not going to happen among just 10% of people. And that really changes things on a larger scale. You have to go a completely different strategy that's less uh, philosophical, less pretty, less appealing to people's greater vision of the universe and just appealing purely to do you want this for your kids? And they're like, yeah, they're my kids. I want this. Or, for them. or even because then there's I mean, I could draw. I love talking theory, environmental mm -hmm. theory. I love it. And I could drop it and we could talk about it all day. I'd love it. Hits up <laughs> when we. When you get down to the pragmatics, exactly what you just mentioned, you know, it doesn't matter for your kids, but then you take it even more basic than that and you get into the environmental justice mm -hmm. and talking about my wetlands uh, the, or the, the Colorado lagoon that had the, the fecal coliform and the E. coli is making people sick. You take that and you increase that on the scale for the Indias and the Mexicos oh. of the world mm -hmm. and um, or aspects of Mexicos of the world and, you know, some of these other places where they are, they're bearing the the burden of it and so they are getting impacted the most so it's environmental issues a lot of people say or one of the the arguments is that it's a first world problem you know oh deal with the endangered species i'm trying to put food on my plate and right. keep that shelter over my head sure. right when you're dealing with those those become way more important but when you can't drink the water that's coming not even in your faucet, but in yeah. the in the river or the yeah. well that you're pulling out. When you can't breathe the air, yep. those are those are. I mean, that's that's Maslow's first level, right? I'm dealing with all the survival issues, and that's where it becomes super important. You see that you cannot argue that you cannot. Argue no, of that. course. And even on the sometimes because we don't draw the link, but even on a first world level where people in inner cities, kids grow up with it insanely high rate of respiratory illness mm -hmm. or, oh, yeah. or you know just the, talk about like the biggest thing that kill people constantly today like when you talk about cancer for example and you know every other person there's somebody who know oh you know somebody who had this form of cancer killed them and we just don't know shit about it mm -hmm. you know it's like what causes it why is it becoming so damn prominent and it shows up in every which way it's like uh, yeah we don't really no much. We got good theories. have something to do with some kind of environmental exp who knows. We that's got good guesses. But that's what I mean. <laughs> it's like kind of drawing that connection which seems to be you know, of course if you start pumping a ton of poison in your water, your air, your food supply, your everything, the odds are that maybe something bad shows up health-wise. Mm -hmm. And oh, look at that. There are some negative strands health-wise mm -hmm. that we can't explain. Connection? Hmm, maybe. You know, that's the kind of stuff where first world stuff shows up suddenly. And all the people who are, you know, absolute freaks in every other way of their life, but suddenly, you know, their aunt dies of cancer and they become really passionate about, I'm yep. going to donate to the cancer society. It's like, well, 
look at some other connections there. You know, what could be some of the issues that are creating this type of problems? And, and that's exactly it. And that is one of the most exciting parts of my, I guess, industry, quote mm-hmm. unquote, dealing with this professionally, the, the, the professionals that deal with environmental issues like myself. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a big white guy. I grew up in a, you know, middle-class neighborhood and mm-hmm. that's that. But what is so cool is that there are groups of people that are going through school. They've lived this experience in uh, inner cities. They lived this experience in um, maybe not in this country um, or they've had different experiences. And now they're going through school. They're starting to take that intuition. They're starting to take that uh, that compassion, that empathy, and they're starting to put it to their professional lives. So one of the coolest things about this industry, environmental industry, is you are starting to see um, lower income people getting into this industry. You're starting to see minorities get into this industry. Mm-hmm. The strongest leaders in the environmental movement are women. Mm-hmm. And it is fascinating to see this. I mean, it's incredible. The restoration projects at Palos Verde Peninsula, Bayona, uh, which is in here in Marina del Rey, Bolsa Chica. Uh, these are all run by some of the the most powerful people I know. They are self-actualized. They are passionate, but they're not crazy. Right. They know how to communicate with you. Right. And they're coming from diverse backgrounds. Yep. And that you can't when you get, deal with that diversity, it's uh, you can't you can't fight it. And that, I guess, is one of the key things, is figuring out a communication strategy, because in that sense, it's such a everybody's issue. Again, it's not an mm-hmm. issue that catered to one particular political philosophy or another, or one particular anything. It's just such a basic human issue that just being able to communicate it as such, mm-hmm. making people realize that that's what we're talking about. We're not trying to sell you on some kind of weird ideology where you have to wear tie-dye shirts in order, which, by the way, I love my tie-dye shirts, but, you know, <laughs> the, you, you know what I mean? is like there's not this sense that you are trying to convert them to some strange worldview that alters radically who they are. Who the fuck cares who you are? Be who whoever you want to be. Just don't, yeah, yeah. Just don't put poison in the water you drink. Simple. Yeah. That's it's, it. It's you know? that simple. And, uh, but yeah, in a way, one thing I wanted to ask about politics, but this time actually related to what we are talking about rather than going off on tangents. One of the problems with the political system in the US, and I'm sure we can say probably the same thing about most other places in the world, but in US, uh, with the whole two-party system, you know, people get rightfully bummed out in some cases because even what you were saying earlier about, you know, gore, the reality is that a lot of the time you have the differences between people who are driving the bus 90 miles an hour toward destruction and people who are driving the bus 60 miles an hour toward destruction. I mean, I'll take the 60 mile an hour guy any day compared to the 90, but, you know, the end result is not dramatically different. And I mean, that's one of the things that pissed me off about Gore in 2000 is that, of course, you know, once you see what Bush Jr. was and did, he's like, Jesus Christ, anything was better than that. But, you know, Gore was a guy who uh, had made a ton of compromises on the very environmental issues that he was supposedly championing. He picked, I mean, who the fuck picked Joe Lieberman as his vice presidential candidate? I mean, you deserve to lose right there, you know what I mean? And <laughs> so I remember back at the time, I was like, fuck these guys, they are just as bad, give me Nader or something. Then, of course, you get stuck with eight-year-old George Bush, and you're like, okay, let me rethink that about the, you know. But in any case, point being, the... Um, 
one of the things that you hear from a lot of segments is people who are bummed out with Republicans, bummed out with Democrats. And so one of the things you start hearing growing more and more is more of a libertarian take on politics. And on some, on some level, there are something very appealing about that. I mean, when you think about all the insanely stupid laws in which we have the government regulating morality, whether it comes to war on drugs, whether it comes to you know, a million other issues, libertarian politics do seem extremely appealing on a very self-evident level. One of the possible downfalls of the whole libertarian thing is when this is applied not purely to issues of personal morality, but when it's applied to the common good, specifically environmental issues. Mm -hmm. Once the libertarian thing of taking away any government role in regulation and anything else, not that the government is doing an amazingly good job at that, far from it, but it's like the solution is having none whatsoever, mm-hmm. none, no regulation whatsoever, and let the industries do what they want. Mm-hmm. E. Yeah, good luck with that. I mm-hmm. mean, we've seen the laissez faire thing. Yeah, take exactly. Its and yeah. that's where, you know, my concern with, because I mean, on some level, I very much sympathize with certain libertarian ideas when it comes to personal issues. Mm-hmm. When it comes to common good issues, um, yeah, I feel a little considerably sketchier about it. I was wondering kind of what's your take on that? I feel that we've reached a point where we don't have the ability to have to have that. Um, we we are so we're so interconnected. And, you know, go back to that mm-hmm. that term. Yeah. We we are de- dependent upon China. Right. For a lot of our goods. Uh, that's how we that's how we are. We are dependent upon um, Mexico. You know, we're dependent upon all these other uh, countries. We are dependent upon the people that uh, that we don't even know that we don't even know exist and that we don't know are going to exist. Right. And so we don't have the ability to actually have that thought to where we can't be responsible for things mm-hmm. um, outside of ourselves. So. That's that's where my head is at, and that kind of comes from um, the Robert Wright, mm-hmm. Non Zero, a fantastic book. He bases his entire book, and he he sums, you know, he, he analyzes human civilization and human evolutionary history, and he does it in the best possible way. He uses game theory, and he shows that um, if you have a zero sum game, there's a winner and a loser. And you put those together, you get zero. You don't go anywhere. Yeah. But when you have a non-zero sum game, you both win or you both lose. And so uh, he, he has some great examples in the book, but he goes forward and he says, you know, everything that we do as humans, humanity is described as a non-zero sum game. If it wasn't, we wouldn't be existing where we are today. Nope. And so he, you know, he says that we don't have the ability not to think about other people. And that's who, that's where we are on the planet. And it's not just other people. It extends to other species. It extends to other, to other homes. So I guess that's my roundabout way of saying, you know, it's, it's, it's beyond our, beyond our cognitive abilities to uh, think that we, we can just think about ourselves. No, and I mean, philosophically, yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. And the point then becomes just figuring out the communication strategy so that people see the benefit to them rather than just appealing to their good heart. Because otherwise, you know, you hear lots of crickets lots of the time when you do that. So instead of trying to, um, you know, appeal to people's self-interest, and I completely agree with you there. 
I guess when it comes to political issues, it's tricky because, I mean, this happens to me in just about every other discussion mm. that whatever people are arguing, I usually see the good side of what they're saying. Mm. And at the same time, I see like, yeah, but you're a fucking idiot because you're taking it so far that you're missing the point. And so when it comes to politics, I don't like Republicans. I don't like Democrats. I don't really, there are issues that I have with libertarians. And even like the, you know, do I like uh, the idea of big state or big government? No, definitely not. At the same time, the people that I should sympathize with who take a more anarchist approach to seeing sort of very strong libertarian one, to me, they are also missing the point. Mm -hmm. Precisely because I don't like government, at the same time, I do see some occasions in which you fucking need it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which doesn't end, you know, people, typical dualistic mentalities. If you do think that you need it here, that means you're a pro big government bastard and you just want the cult of the state and you're as late. It's like, no, you stupid motherfucker. It's mm-hmm. balance between yeah. things and you need to figure out where the balance is. Yeah. And it's constantly changing. Yeah. And I think people like so much simple slogans, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, all one way or all another way or government all absolutely always bad all absolutely always it's like people tend to have a hard time with the subtlety of it all yeah and this is a game that's done all by subtlety because you're not gonna convince people to go completely one route abandoning everything they ever believed in in mm-hmm. terms of um, how they consume the kind of standards of living they want to live by you're not going to convince people of the exact opposite. You know, it's just not going to happen that way. And so to me, but, it's... But it, that, I wouldn't want to almost. Right. I want that dialogue. Right. I want that, you know, that dialectic that's just going to go forward. And it, right. it, you're going to figure something out of it. And you're you're going to be able to get that, again, going to diversity. You mm-hmm. want that diversity of, of, of thought. Because there's no way to progress. There's no way to have that creativity to go forward unless you you get the chaos that comes from a, a good argument. I thought, like, to me, diversity of thought, like, all the many, many, many voices in my head is more than enough diversity. So any other opinion <laughs> needs to be squashed. But, yes, no, other than that, I completely agree with you. Right? <laughs> so the, the, the problems are massive. But what are some tiny, small steps? I mean, back when I lived in Nashville and we were um, – Work with the Girl Scouts and the Boy Scouts, we would do simple things like painting storm drains that this dumps to the Cumberland River. Um, and I know you talked about people way far away from the ocean don't really realize that all this is that's where it ends up. But what are small things people can do to get involved and just help out a, a tiny bit at a time? Yeah, that. There's a million websites that can tell you what to do, uh, tell you what to do in your community, tell you what to do uh, in general. Uh, where I come from is just the, the basic philosophy, just give a shit. Just care about something outside of yourself. Um, and if that m- takes you down the path of picking up trash in your neighborhood, that's the path it takes you on. If it means that you're going to... Uh, come down to one of our restoration sites and go plant plants in the ground and uh, dedicate your life to saving environmental or endangered species like myself, my business partner, and all the crazy environmental scientists that work for me. That's, I mean, we've changed our lives for that reason. So uh, just is, give is, a is shit. Is that available? Could people volunteer to come out and help and maybe get a taste of it? Because I could imagine once you start down this path, it's something that just infects you. And Yeah, it does. Um, yeah, so... One of the ways that I built my company is I don't take jobs. um, I haven't yet, and I don't want to. Uh, You never know where the world takes you, but I won't take a job by a developer. 
Um, I don't work in that realm. What I do is I build projects. I build programs. And so our company, all the people that work for me, these, these incredibly empowered people, we build programs so that our restoration sites end up successful, not because we hired some group of people to come and put plants in the ground, because we hired a bunch of scientists to tell us, okay, here's what you got now, and then they leave. We build programs so that the community comes out and does this work. Um, we made commitments to to our to our stakeholders, and we said, no, you know what? I'm not going to have some consulting group come in and put plants in. I'm going to make sure every single one of the thousands of plants that go into my restoration site are done by a Cub Scout. They're done by a Boy Scout. They're done by a community group, a church group. I don't care. Somebody from the neighborhood, I want them out there working because then they're going to get that experience that I got. Who knows where that takes them? Maybe they forget about it after they leave. Maybe they don't. They're going to put that plant in the ground. They're going to get an experience out of that. And the most direct benefit because they're there. And the most direct benefit. And then they're going to go home and most of them are going to actually like it. And then they're going to talk about it. And then when they see that our project is successful in a couple of years and then they start to see it grow, they're going to get that pride. And they're going to have that ownership. That's the only way that I see our projects are going to be sustainable wow. is if our community does it. And so we made that commitment. So, yeah, we have those. Um, my two big projects, Los Cerritos Wetlands and the Colorado Lagoon, we built projects for those. You can go on onto our websites and see all the dates that we have. We, we do, I think, like 10 public events every month for each site. Nice. Um, so we, we have tons of opportunities. I work with all the local schools give them opportunities to go out, so, yeah. Are you familiar with the fight they had in, in Malibu? All I remember is there was a thousand people on the PCH one day, kind of down where Malibu Colony is, and they were trying to protect brown baby ducks. And then the next thing I know, three days later, there were 10,000 bulldozers there, I guess. Oh, oh, uh, Malibu Lagoon. Yes. Yeah, Malibu Lagoon. Um, what was that? Same thing I'm doing. Is it? Same thing I'm doing. It's a restoration. It's a restoration of a, of a wetland habitat. Um, I, we kind of talked about it. The wetlands here in Southern California are the most, they're one of 12 of the most unique habitats on the planet. Is that because we have mountains going straight into the ocean here? That's one of the reasons, yeah. Because we don't have like mangroves or any sort of gentle slope into the... Into yeah, but, the coast. But about that one, if you guys have paid attention to previous episodes, freaking ducks rape each other on a regular basis. So, <laughs> oh, if you've br- ever seen it, it's horrible. So oh. Bring in the bulldozer, bulldoze those bastards. <laughs> Only the male ducks. Yeah. <laughs> no, if you've. And, I was more concerned with his new plant friend. <laughs> yeah, there you yeah. go. I'm sorry. No, but yeah, it's, yeah, don't ever watch ducks have sex. It's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> It'll make you cry. Um,. But yeah, that's what that project is. It's wetlands restoration, um, and it's uh, to build habitat, to build habitat for animals and plants. Um, and that's what that project was for. There's some controversy behind that because oh, yeah. there's different people that, and actually the controversy is between the the sides, the good sides, the uh, the, the the good teams on both sides. They they want the restoration, but in different ways. And that's, I hate that. I hate the infighting. I hate the environmentalists eating in their young. I hate the lack of ability to adapt. That's what drives me crazy about this industry, quote unquote. But um, that's one of the issues with Malibu Lagoon is that uh, it's a wetland restoration. Um, and yeah, that's what was going on. Same thing I'm doing. 
I'm, I'm building wetlands, and uh, we're we're saving not just for the ducks, but for everything. Fucking the ducks. <laughs> but it just makes sense why I could never figure out what the angle was, because it's mm-hmm. like, they both seem to want. Yep. Then when the bulldozer showed up, I felt like uh, Donald Trump had won. Yep. So. yep. Yeah. You know, by the way, that after he said the whole thing about no seeing ducks have sex, right now the number of Google searches for duck porn has just spiked tremendously. Oh, among if our you ever, I mean, this is getting a little weird, but uh, duck penises? I'm missing out. Oh my goodness! Yeah, Google that. <laughs> I just bought the uh, I just bought the URL. So <laughs> duck penises. That's oh man. Yeah, I'm there, speechless. There you go, man. It's uh, this Duncan moment brought to you by yeah. Monsanto. <laughs> oh, speaking of which, sorry, totally on a tangent, but a million thanks to somebody who just bought through my Amazon link some of the most bizarre sex toys I've ever seen. Again, I don't get to see names of who buys what, but I get to see what is being bought, and somebody got some really bizarre... Did they get them for you? No, sadly okay. not. Well, actually not so sadly, <laughs> not my thing, but it was, uh, yeah, I think... Yeah, that was interesting. In uh, the Daffy Duck Cock Dildo. Yeah, that was just one step away from that, but wow. fascinating stuff. Oh, but man, yeah. To take you away on a different direction, um, where we met the first time originally was inside a boxing gym. Yeah. So, yeah, the typical thing that all environmentalists do in their free time is punch people in the face, there right? There you go. So, yeah, explain uh, a little bit. Fighting, a connection with... Um, who you are how does that play oh man yeah that's i don't know um i i have loved boxing since i was a kid my dad loved boxing uh we grew up in a latino neighborhood and uh we all we watched was uh we watched the lakers and then we watched soccer and boxing and um i i remember um, all the all the women in the kitchen uh, patting the tortillas and and making the carne asada, and all the guys in the in the living room watching Hector Macho Camacho come out with all this frilly <laughs> stuff, and I've loved it ever since I was a kid, and um, yeah, last year the DG Pine Avenue gym opened mm-hmm. up in Long Beach, and uh, I they had a special, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to try it out. And it was one of the best things I've ever done in my life. The biggest changes uh, for me personally, uh, from my perspective on what I'm doing, and just giving me that confidence to go forward. Yeah, in which way? Because, I mean, there are plenty of people who are listening right now who are big into MMA and yeah. fighting, so they get it. You know, there's no need to explain. Yeah. At the same time, there are a bunch of people who are not into that kind of thing. Oh, everyone I hang out with. only <laughs> listening because of my lovable, sexy accent. And they may not be into the uh, fighting and brutality and blood. No, of I'm all. dying to know, because that's me. What was that first day like? Did they just yeah. beat the shit out of you to introduce you to, or were they actually gentle with you? Well, so I I went for the for the workout. Um, that's what I wasn't intending to fight. Actually, oh, okay. I, I wanted to you know get that. Well, because I you know just knowing boxing, knowing the sport, I know that the the some of the best athletes in the world are fighters. Um, and so I I wanted to get in shape because um, I was working myself to death. I mean, we've got big projects. I was stressing out. Um, I mean, it sounds great to work with kids and to work with endangered species and get to work outside and. Uh, and it is, it is great, but it's huge. And so I was stressing myself out and I wasn't, 
I had no extracurricular life at all. Um, I was all work, and I'm still in 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 that way a lot. But um, I just you know just went out and I wanted to work out. And then they asked me, you know, you want to get in the ring? And I was like, I, I kind of do. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I don't have the body type for boxing at all. I'm I'm tall and lanky. Um, uh, Outside boxing. Yeah, there you go. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so I. I got in the ring and it is an incredible experience and it yeah it's it's amazing so um, how does that translate to life you know beside the high and endorphins and the fun of the working out and the getting you in shape you know all good stuff but what's the connection between what you do in the gym and the rest of your life yeah that's a, that's a trip I, I'm starting to see it now mm -hmm. um After I've, done, I've been doing it for about 10 months now. Mm -hmm. And I'm starting to see the, the, the connection now. One of the ways, we actually had a huge scare. Um, in, like right before Christmas, all of our wetlands almost died. Um, we have about uh, 200 acres that just almost just died. Mm -hmm. The reason why was because of some governmental agencies were going to cut off our water that is necessary for a wetland. Right. And it was just, it, it's I'm not, not even, the specialist, but yes, I yeah, can see water. Exactly, water wetlands, wetland, right? Yep. <laughs> and it's not even worth going into how and why, but basically it's, it's, we think we fixed it now and we fixed the issues. But um, when we had that first meeting, uh, I found myself, and we were outside working, and I found myself getting in my boxing stance. And I wasn't going to fight the guy. I was never going to do that. But what happened was, That was a physical reaction to the mental reaction that I was going through. I now realize that if I don't fix this problem right now, my wetlands die. And so I had the mindset that I that I use when I'm in, in the gym or even just thinking about being in the gym. And it was like, I have to fight this mm -hmm. and I have to be smart about it. And I have to get pumped up and I have to get that energy going and I have to win. Right. And so that was one of the changes I saw. Um, the confidence was the most, most important though. You, you, you get, there's weird things that go through your brain yep. and it changes the way you look at the world. Yep. Big time. And so, I mean, in that regard, when you're talking about environmental issues in your job specifically and on a larger scale, you are talking about a battle essentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's uh, it's a battle between forces of destruction, forces of creation, and you're trying, it really boils down to a contest in a way. Yep. And so developing that toughness that resilience that ability to take the punch mm -hmm. and staying with it you oh, know because that's to me and i mean i'm gonna go off on that kind of stuff in other occasions to death but to me that's like the biggest thing out of combat sports is not so much the flamboyant technique that you'll develop is not so much all the other stuff is learning how to take a beat in and stay in it you yeah. know because that's that's what's most applicable to life mm -hmm. you know what i mean it's like you are in a battle that you're not gonna win because you decide i started i think it's a good idea to go this environmental route now everybody's gonna listen to me and it all works out and we ride off into the sunset and everybody's up it's yeah like, that was easy that's yeah. that's the thought process i had going into it yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> it's like doesn't exactly no, work that way no, and it's like for each quarter of an inch you move forward you have forces that are trying to push you 10 feet back yep So in that sense, learning how to fight is not, I mean, the physical is fun, is great, yeah. is all of that, but it really just train your mind to It's deal all, yeah. with adversity in life. 
I, and this happened last week. I, I sparred. I was in the in the ring, and I'm, I'm sitting on a broken rib right now, mm-hmm. and my my wrist is is hurting real bad because I got my ass handed to me. Right. Um, worse than I'd ever than I'd ever had since right. I started. Um, it was from a friend, which was a weird concept. That was a weird thing getting right. started. When you have to punch a friend in the face, <laughs> that was a weird idea for me to get over. I have I no such problems. <laughs> but, and it probably ended pretty quickly when that first good clack came in, right? I, Did that flip the switch? or No. It, no, I still have a really hard time with it. I'm, it's, it's one of the harder things that I have with fighting is actually in the fight that I was in last week, I got off a really good punch, and it was just—it was probably one of my best punches. And I, and instead of having that killer instinct come out, I went, "Oh, are you all right?" <laughs> and that's not what you need in boxing. But uh, but yeah, I got—he he kicked my ass. Oh man, and and I never have experienced this before in my life. And I've done some crazy shit. Mm-hmm. I would stop. I mean, in, on boats or, or uh, just crazy stuff. I've never experienced this before. I was so overwhelmed because he was so much better than me. I didn't know what to do. Yep. And that flight or fight thing kicked in. I don't know what it was. I knew I had to punch him and I knew right. I had to block and I knew I had, I couldn't do it. And he, he was just, he was schooling me. Right. And it was such, you get into that, that red zone where you're just, you know, your tachometer is just flying and you can't think and you're in that, I I learned that that's where I need to I need to play in that realm a little bit better yep. more because that's, it was frightening. I mean, nobody's comfortable there, right? And yeah. that's why nobody does it, and that's yeah. why nobody learns anything. About but it was one of the best things that happened. Yeah, absolutely. Because that's it feels like hell. Yeah, it's horrible. Yeah, it's the you swear to yourself that you'll never put yourself in that place again. Yeah, but in a way, as horrible as it is is it is the thing that you can get the learned most from Mm -hmm. because you know if you keep doing something you're already good at in that sense it's like big deal you're never out of your comfort zone which is great for 90 percent of life but what about the times that life whether you like it or not pushes you Mm -hmm. out of your comfort zone and that's kind of like your book you know being that warrior Mm -hmm. having that having that you know being that warrior in the ring and that ethic that transcends to the rest of the things in right. your life. And so, you know, you're, you're going to be the best human that you can be because you are more of a warrior now. Big time. And yeah. there's, um, when I wrote uh, on the Warrior's Path originally, the very, very first edition, which was in Italian, had only eight chapters. And then uh, I wrote I three more for the, for the first American edition in 2003. And then I added two more. So now it's 13 in the last one. But the very first edition, the last chapter, so it, right now it would be chapter eight, um, was called The Warrior as Bodhisattva. And it was this whole idea of taking, you know, first seven chapters, we've looked at uh, the beauty and the philosophy of martial arts in a million other ways, and that's great and all. Chapter eight was the so what moment. It's like, yeah, great. Martial art make you feel good about this, develop this talent, develop self-confidence, does this and that. That's nice and all what for you know mm-hmm. what is the point of it all and in that sense is where i was tying fighting to what you're talking right now which is about thinking on a bigger scale and you know all the battles you do in the ring are mere preparation for the bigger things the real deep issues the stuff that make for which people are living and dying today stuff like environmental issues stuff like affecting the quality of 
life on earth you know affecting reducing pain and suffering for as many human beings as you can bringing yeah. as much joy and insight to as many human beings as you being can being an amazing human i mean entropy yeah. is the state of the universe yeah. equilibrium death i mean when you look at the universe it's just it's it's darkness mm -hmm. and when you have the ability to express yourself as a human all you're doing is you're carrying on everything else that the earth has been doing it's it's just expressing itself life yep. life as an expression is so hard to express to be a species mm -hmm. is so challenging but then when you can then take yourself and express yourself whether it's through you know art whether it's through taking care of your community whether it's through fighting you're expressing yourself and you're being and that is just a challenge that's very bruce lee of you <laughs> you're saying. exactly to honestly express yourself <laughs> there you go man that's it yeah that's uh, it yeah. Well, speaking of oh god i was just gonna say unbelievably We've kind of reached the edge of our, our time limit. Well, we're way too perfect. quickly. Way well, too unbelievably, quickly. this is two interviews in a row that could just go on for another three hours without any problem. I'm honored. I'm honored. Absolutely. No, thanks so much, Tyler. This was a lot of fun. I'm glad we could uh, play with it because these are such fun key issues, and I love the way you present them. That, again, is not like a dogmatic approach. Either direction is very... Very real, very Thank about you. how making things happen in the real world as opposed to some purely philosophical statement of how things should be, which is like, doesn't really help anybody. Yeah, know? thank so. you. If, if folks want to learn more or get in contact, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Yeah, so my, my company's website is Tidal Influence. That's my company, is Tidal Influence. Um, I, I deal with the tides uh, and everything influenced by the tides. So Be like water, my friend. There you go, right? <laughs> Uh, TitleInfluence.com is uh, my company and everything that we do. I uh, also, my projects, ColoradoLagoon.org and IntoLosCerritosWetlands.org. Those are our biggest ones. But, uh, but yeah, and I'll have links to all the sites on my website too. Yeah, and if you didn't catch them, we're going to put the websites in the episode notes. So oh, cool. if you check you. on the, um, the web page for The Drunken Taoist, you'll see for episode 11, we'll make sure to include this site so you have a direct link. Terrific. Yeah. That's how it ends, guys. Thank, thank you so much. Man. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you for giving me the platform to speak about you know stuff I love and that I feel is you know, important. <laughs> another awesome episode of the Drunken Dallas Podcast. Be sure to keep your ears peeled for another mind-expanding episode coming soon. We'll be tweeting you as soon as they come out. We keep track of Daniel at D-Bolelli. That's D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. You can find me on Twitter at Richimon1. That's R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N the number one. See y'all soon.